to episode 436 of the Cyber Law Podcast. It is 2023, and we're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government. And the views we're about to express here don't reflect those of our institutions, our clients, our friends, our family, not even our pets. Uh, joining me from the News Roundup, Jim Dempsey, associated with both the UC Berkeley School of Law and Stanford University's Cyber Policy Center. Dmitry Alperovich, who's the co-founder and chairman of the nonprofit Silverado Policy Accelerator, and Paul Rosenzweig, founder of Red Branch Consulting. I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the host of today's program. Dimitri, what I'd like to jump into is I thought there was a remarkable amount of real news about the decoupling and industrial policy battle that the United States and China are engaged in over the last month. And on the whole, it was better news than I would have expected. The kinds of things that are going on is first, lots of companies now, Facebook, Dell, are saying we're going to, we're trying to get rid of dependence on Chinese hardware. The U.S. is pouring a bunch of money into chips and doesn't know how it's going to work out. That's for sure. But China, after saying we're pouring, you know, we have this big fund and we're putting massive amounts, billions, 45 billion into chips, has sort of started to back away from that. Maybe they can't afford it. Maybe they don't think it's working because the last big fund bought them mostly a bunch of corruption. And China is already kind of backing away from its enthusiasm for ideology over economics. So a lot of these things are, on the whole, pretty healthy developments from the United States. And I wondered whether you shared my sense that we might have done this more or less right. Well, a lot to digest there. I, I think we're moving in the right direction, but there are certainly worrisome signs ahead. You're absolutely right that when it comes to U.S. industry, they're finally starting to read between the lines and realizing that having a huge dependency on China over the long term is not in their interest and, and could be existential. So Apple, for example, diversifying their iPhone and MacBook production to India and Vietnam and, and even the US is, is a reflection of that. Dell is another company that's doing that. Facebook, as you mentioned, although it's been interesting that Mark Zuckerberg has done a complete 180 on China because, as you recall, he was learning Mandarin. Oh, yeah. and, and and didn't he, teach, he named his son after she or something? And then TikTok appeared out of nowhere and, and became a major threat and suddenly Facebook became anti-China. But that is prudent, both because if you look at the, what the U.S. is doing with export control restrictions on China, tariffs that the Trump administration introduced in 2019 that are still with us today and the Biden administration has not gone away with them, despite the fact that industry has lobbied really, really hard for it. They are starting to realize that long-term massive dependency on China is not good and you want alternatives. And if, God forbid, there's a conflict over Taiwan, you're certainly not going to be buying anything from China if you're a U.S. company. So, so that that's a positive. On the other hand, some of the news that we're seeing about the effectiveness of our export controls is a little bit more concerning. So, for example, Huawei has announced that their annual revenues have stabilized and yep. um, are no longer falling precipitously. And they're still making tens of billions of dollars a year in sales of a variety of both telecom equipment. They're now expanding massively into cloud. They're building data centers all over Latin America and, and Africa and elsewhere. And, what and the, the Germans are still still buying their stuff. 
Yeah, they're not buying it in the core of the 5G network, but they're certainly buying it at the edge, which is concerning. But what appears to be happening is that China, over the last three years, appears to have built a production facility for chips. They're not able to produce cutting-edge chips at sort of you know 5 nanometers, 7 nanometers, but potentially doing 28 nanometers, maybe even smaller, in large part because they've probably been able to acquire U.S. and Japanese and Dutch equipment needed for manufacturing of chips. We've now started, of course, cracking down on that with the export control rules that were announced in October on export of, of equipment for production of 16 nanometers and below. But if you're still above that, it's a free-for-all. And one of the things I think is very concerning with regards to the chip's trajectory is that, as you said, the Chinese are sort of abandoning, appear to be abandoning the push to own the advanced chips, in large part because they won't be able to get the equipment because of these new export controls. But they are doubling down on mature node production, sort of 60 nanometers and above, or above 60 nanometers. And those are actually the vast majority of the market. Those are the chips that go into your weapon systems, into your microwaves, into your cars, into most of your electronics. Even something like an iPhone is going to have only two advanced chips at sort of the three nanometers and, and so forth, the memory and, and the processor, but all the other chips for Wi-Fi, power management, battery, et cetera, are gonna be mature chips. So without those, you still don't have an iPhone. And TSMC is is actually considering getting out of that business, of the mature node business, because the margins are a lot better in the advanced and because they think that the Chinese, with all their subsidies that they're going to dedicate to the mature nodes, are going to own that. So that actually presents, I think, a, a very severe threat to the U.S. if China owns that market, even if we can do the advanced chips. Mature nodes are still going to be around for many, many decades. So that's so uh, problem number one. And Okay. And I, I would just observe, when Japan... Japan was doing this, they called it a fast follower model, right? You know, you go ahead and have the best technology in the world, and we'll be right behind there, behind you to commoditize and, t and kick you out of the market. That's right. And one last thing to mention is that now China is considering retaliatory measures. So FT is reporting that China is considering doing rare earth export curbs to try to hobble our defense industry. I think that will be counterproductive for them because rare earths, of course, are not rare. They can be mined in lots of places. Processing right now mostly happens in China because of the subsidies that they're giving to their industry. But that can be quickly diversified, as Japan actually managed to do when China curbed their exports of rare earths to them over a decade ago. So it's still a mixed bag, I would say. We're moving in the right directions, but there's a lot that China can do to hurt us, and we need to be very vigilant. Yeah, this is a this is a 40-year issue. And what's surprising is that it's not looking like a disaster now. It's not going to be politically discredited anytime soon, is my guess. Although we're going to find the same corruption problems in our big chip program as the Chinese found in theirs. One more thing I want to add is that many people may have missed, but uh, President Biden signed a bipartisan law last week that was passed in December by the previous Congress, which mandates the administration to submit report to Congress on the individuals and companies in China that are conducting intellectual property theft, and then to implement a range of measures against those individuals and companies, including export controls, entities list, visa bans, and a range of other things. 
really another way that both Congress and the administration are looking to crack down on Chinese IP theft. Yeah. Okay. So it'll be it'll be Stuart, easier to do a to a list of people who aren't. Paul, uh, just just to add one other yeah iron in the fire. There's obviously a great deal of disagreement in in Congress these days about a whole host of things. But one thing that there seems to be bipartisan agreement upon is that the House rules, whenever they get adopted, will create a select committee under Mike Gallagher to investigate China and American dependence on China. You you wonder you worry about that overly politicizing. The question, but it seems like that is one of the few areas where the two parties are more or less headed in the same direction. So it's unlikely to be contentious and much more likely, I think, to be another avenue of, of confrontation with China, which should be interesting. Yeah. Gallagher's a serious guy and he has been yes. pretty bipartisan. And so, yeah, you can hope that this committee for at least the, the next two years is going to be one that is a little closer to, say, the Senate Intelligence Committee than to, say, the House Intelligence Committee. But we can see a lot out of that committee. And if minority representative is equally serious and constructive, you could you could see a lot of stuff coming out of this over a long haul. Okay, let's move on to other stuff that that legislation that actually passed. I, I thought this was really interesting. Jim, you have an article in Lawfare Today, I think, about a provision in the Omnibus Appropriations Bill about medical device security and essentially authorizing the FDA to to do some basic cybersecurity regulating for medical devices, which to my mind is is essential for some of this stuff. You know, I, you're not going to you're not going to swap it out if it's inside your chest. You're going to need to update it. And so finding ways to make sure that that stuff stays secure is critical. Yeah, I agree, Stuart. And by my reckoning, this legislation granting the, the, the Food and Drug Administration authority over the, the cybersecurity of connected medical devices, by my reckoning, this is the first piece of legislation that Congress has passed since the Energy Policy Act of 2005, in which Congress has specifically said to a agency, a regulatory agency, set rules for the security of devices or products or services under your jurisdiction. Congress did that for the bulk power industry and the and, and even what they what they did for the bulk power was not really a well they a, they a, granted the ability to write the rules to the industry itself exactly, uh, exactly. Um, and so whether this is the the opening up of sort of the imagination and scope of congressional action here remains to be seen but I do think it's significant I've argued that the Food and Drug Administration already had authority. If the Food and Drug Administration has authority to regulate the safety of medical devices, and I always thought safety of medical devices included whether they could be hacked and uh, destroyed or used to destroy the patient. But FDA said no, they weren't sure. Certainly the Supreme Court in its EPA case from last summer gave some credence or support to that agency perspective of unless the statute says cybersecurity, our authority doesn't cover cybersecurity. The FDA, to its credit, came forward in its budget authorization request for fiscal uh, 23 and said, we, we want this authority. It passed the House on an overwhelming bipartisan vote. It was initially dropped from some FDA legislation. But then it ended up being added, along with a lot else, 
to the omnibus must pass appropriations bill. It requires that companies have plans and procedures to give reasonable assurance that the device and its related systems are cyber secure. And of course, that word reasonableness is a, a lawyer's word. What is reasonable? But then it says that the Secretary of Health and Human Services, who will delegate the authority to the FDA, that, that the secretary may establish requirements by regulation. The secretary or the, the, the FDA has already, in fact, issued extensive guidance on security of medical devices. And, but you know, it's like um, Pirates of the Caribbean when Barbarossa talks about the Pirate's Code and says, well, it's more recommendations than, than binding <laughs> rules. But now you're going to see these guidelines over a rulemaking process become binding law to be enforced by, by, the, by the FDA. I think it's an important sign. I think it's an, a valid approach to try to develop these rules sector by sector. I don't really support the notion that we should have some uber cybersecurity regulatory authority. I don't think that would ever pass Congress anyhow. But this agency by agency, sector by sector, incremental approach, I think is promising. The next question is, will the administration prompt other of its departments and agencies to come forward and say, give us the express authority, which could be just a few words, safety right. and security, comma, including cybersecurity. So we'll see. But to me, it was significant that this actually survived. Industry, I guess, was prepared to swallow it. I thought they would fight it. It looked like for a while they were fighting it, but it passed on an overwhelming vote. So we'll see. I have a very jaundiced view of the FDA's ability to handle these cybersecurity issues because, and that I will freely admit it's influenced by the fact that I had a client who found serious security flaws in St. Paul's heart implants, things that could, that where you could just basically give somebody a heart attack remotely. And the response of the of St. Paul was to sue my client for the libel, and the response of the FDA was kind of, oh, I don't think we want to scare people, do we? And so it was they they were completely clueless yeah. about yeah. how yeah. cybersecurity works. Yeah. I'm sure they're better now. That was almost ten years ago. But it 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 whenever I hear about this, I always think, you know, if the idiots who were doing this 10 years ago are still around at the FDA, we've got a lot of work ahead of us. Well, and it raises the basic question of sort of regulatory capacity, the ability to hire the necessary staff to, to, to do these reviews. Each medical device comes with a pre-market submission submitted to the FDA for its review. I actually discovered, by the way, that they use some third-party entities, non-governmental entities under contract to do some of those reviews. Yeah. So yeah, enforcement is always always the question here, but we got to start somewhere, Stuart. Yeah, I, I, fair enough. I, it, it, it makes sense to do that. I, and the FDA, to its credit, actually is one of the agencies that has leaned heavily, most heavily on CISA for borrowed expertise, mm -hmm. and that's exactly what they should be doing. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, this is this was one of the big bills that came out and produced cybersecurity news. The there's a lot of talk about a White House cybersecurity strategy that's been expected sometime 
soon. I think it's been soon for weeks, if not months, but it's starting to leak. A lot of people have seen drafts of it. I'm guessing that ha- at least half the people on this call have seen drafts of it. Paul, you've, you've got strong views about it and a pretty good assessment of where it's going. Why don't you tell us what you think is most significant about the, the new strategy, which, you know, this is the first Biden strategy. There was a Trump strategy. On the timing piece, I, I think it's almost certain to come in the first quarter of this year. I have every expectation that it will come before Chris Inglis leaves, unless it gets killed somewhere. But it, I think part of the reason that we're seeing draft, we're seeing discussion of it in the papers, is that it's gotten far enough along that it's, it, it can be shared. Of course, it may be that some of the sharing is to force the recalcitrant people to acknowledge that it's going to come out. That's the whole inside baseball thing that you know, you play with the press. So who knows? As to what it's going to do, you know, from everything that you've, we've seen and everything we've heard from people like, like Chris Inglis and Ann Newberger, right? It's going to, it's the first thing that's going to be new and different is it's going to build on what Jim was just talking about. It's going to lean heavily into a regulatory impulse with respect to cybersecurity. It's going to call for regulation in at least some of the critical industries, if not all industries, you know, you, you have to imagine energy, finance, that sort of thing, to be ramped up and made made more enforceable rather than just standard setting. And, you know, the last time that the federal government took a swing at this was back in 2012, 2013, when Senator Lieberman and Senator Collins, you know, proposed, you know, making regulatory authority explicit in the statute. I think that with respect to, to what we can see coming, you know, it's, it's kind of like you, you, you go to, you go to regulation with the, with the laws you have, not the laws you wish you had. And so they're going to lean into as much regulatory authority as they can without seeking congressional approval. I would, I think I would predict fairly confidently that the first focus will be on people who do business with the federal government using a procurement a- a activities or receipt of funds as carrots and stick levers to, to move people along in various ways. That seems likely to be the most significant practical impact. I mean, the other parts of the strategy, I'm sure, will will pick up on all of the stuff that we that we still are working out through the Solarium Commission, you know, more aggressive defend forward by U.S. Cyber Command, that sort of thing. The other one that is, I think, the one you probably want me to talk about, Stuart, is is controversial and it will require legislation. So so it may be dead on arrival, but it is the first time that anybody is starting to talk about the concept of liability for third party effects from cyber negligent cybersecurity failures. You know, theorists have known since 2005, you know, when, when we first started having cyber problems, that part of the underinvestment is because nobody, nobody has to internalize all of the costs of their inadequate cybersecurity. And there's lots of reasons to, to think that, that perhaps the markets can't price it well, you know, in terms of transparency, in terms of information asymmetries, in terms of free riders, there's a whole boat, boatload of problems. But I think it's reasonably significant that at least according to the Washington Post, the new strategy is going to affirmatively call for legislation to impose liability on those who are negligent in their in their cybersecurity practices, which, you know, even if it doesn't, I mean, yeah, I realize that it probably won't be enacted, but strategies like this have long tails, right? We are still working out 
many of the strategies that you and I helped to develop with the Comprehensive National Cybersecurity Initiative under President Bush in 2005, which are you know, just now coming to fruition because they've been part and parcel of of what the government has wanted to do for the last 15 years. If this sticks, and it may not in the next administration, but if it does stick, it's it, it'll be a big change at some point. Well, just to be clear, Paul, you're talking here in part about software liability when you talk about third parties, right? Yeah. I think it's I think they are talking about software liability. They are talking about enterprise liability for implementation as well. I don't know that they're going to be talking about hardware liability, but you know, when you start the conversation, I don't think you know exactly where it's going to go. But the people who will be most impacted by this, if it were actually to come to pass, would be Microsoft and Colonial Pipeline, you know, to take kind of two. Uh, yeah. Uh, and obviously they're going to resist this substantially, <laughs> substantially. And that's one of the reasons why it probably will not come to pass this year. But shots fired sort of thing, right? I, I think zero chance it passes in this Congress with the Republicans oh, yeah. uh, holding the House. In some ways, you know, these strategies articulate the consensus view. So when it comes to regulation, of course, this administration has been leaning hard into regulation in cyber since the get-go, since the May 2020 one executive order that, of course, put uh -huh. significant regulations on contractors to the federal government in terms of what they had to do with their cybersecurity. Then you had TSA regulations on pipelines and other segments that came out out of Colonial. So, so in many ways, the strategy is repeating really the direction that the administration has already been going into. On the liability front, it's trying to carve out new ground, but I think that will be very controversial. We'll see if that even survives the interagency process, much less Congress when that strategy comes out. But, you know, I, I think it's important to sort of set a line in the sand of where you think you should be going as a government, but we should be also realistic that this is a strategy, this is not an executive order, this is not prescriptive in terms of what's going to be happening. In many ways, it's it's much more aspirational of here's where we want to go. A lot of it is going to require regulations in a, in a divided Congress that's unlikely to pass much of anything. It's probably not going to accomplish a whole lot. And then, you know, if there is an administration change in 24, we may see a very different strategy. While we're speaking of institutions or commercial institutions that don't have sufficient incentive to protect the cybersecurity of data, LastPass has been uh -huh. in a, a kind of dance of seven veils size for about six months in which they told us in the middle of last year, well, we had an incident, but, you know, don't worry. And then the incident, well, yeah, he actually, uh, he did get to access to some data. And then just before Christmas, if I remember right, LastPass said, actually, he got all of your vault passwords, but don't worry, they're encrypted but that's i frankly a, Ex except a some nervous. of the data in them like the url which sometimes may contain yeah, the metadata yes. is not right. is, is not encrypted so they can sit there and they can say i want to know which of which sites dimitri visits so that i can figure out which one would be most useful to compromise his password on but, but it's and not even can... just that Stuart, because yep. sometimes the urls will contain an authentication token which will let you in if, if there's a bad <laughs> authentication credential so that might itself be a password equivalent. Okay, so how many people on this call actually used LastPass before Christmas? Okay, it's, there's three of us. And how many are using it today? 
one. <laughs> so it's it, it, the thing that finally convinced me, you know, because people can make mistakes, although this was a series of, of mistakes and a lot of withholding of information. Uh, but LastPass has fallen into the hands of, a, of private equity. And those guys are about squeezing the last buck out of the companies they own. And the best way to squeeze the last buck out of the companies you own is to be chintzy about new security measures. Stuart, that so, is such a socialist line from you. I'm shocked. <laughs> you know, not that I want to be well, defending but, but private Stuart's equity, but but I'll just say this. I've worked with a number of private equity firms. They all vary, and some of them are very proactive in their security. Some of them have a CISO at the private okay. equity level that works with individual companies. So I don't think that's true at all, that private equity has this massive impact on security. But I'll tell you one thing. You have two big password managers. Obviously, there are many others, but you have LastPass and one password. And this mm -hmm. is all about the response. And I can't believe how many companies to this day and age try to obscure, try to not reveal yeah. what's happening. And the companies that respond rapidly to a breach, even a devastating one, are the ones that keep all of their customers. Time and time yeah. ago, and again, this has been proven. And what LastPass has been doing has just been incredibly dumb. Forget the security aspect of it, yeah. but just the customer management aspect of it. I, I am on the board of one company that was a customer, and they couldn't get any information from them on what's actually happening. They're no longer a customer, just like some of the people on this call. I'll, I'll have to admit I was not one of the customers of LastPass and, and, and certainly not, not going to be one anytime soon, but th there was a great Twitter thread that was released right before the holiday about an experience that someone had reporting vulnerability to 1Password, and certainly every software has vulnerabilities. And within literally 24 hours, not only did they admit that this was a problem, but they all released a patch for it and were very transparent about it. And then you have the LastPass experience, right? This is all about how you respond to these breaches, and don't ever try to hide. And if your lawyer tries to slow you down, tries to you know put out you know statements that you have to parse with a law degree to understand what's actually happening, Kick them out and be transparent. Get on the phone call with customers. Tell them exactly what happened. Not only are you not going to be sued, but you'll keep them versus losing them. Yeah, we had a great... So I'll, I'll give you... I'll just interject. We had a great bonus episode just before Christmas on the impact of breach counsel particularly those appointed by the insurance companies who are really think that their job is to protect the privilege and therefore keep information out from getting out about the breach. And you, I think you're right, Dimitri. That's a, this is another bad influence, especially of, of counsel who think their job is to keep the information locked up because yeah. in the long run, that'll hurt the business. Ultimately, the job of a lawyer, a good lawyer, is to reduce risk to the company, and you have to weigh the consequences of a lawsuit, which may be significant, versus the consequence of losing all your customers, which will be existential. <laughs> I'll, I'll give you a perfectly good example of what Dimitri's talking about, which is exactly right. So I have dropped LastPass, and I exported my, my vault, so I didn't have to re-enter it, and I was able to import it to my next password manager, and that transition is going good. I have asked and have not received a uh, an answer to the following question. If I delete and deactivate my account at LastPass, which I haven't done yet because I want to make sure that the transition goes well, but when I do that, what happens to my vault? 
I think they have said that oh. that it'll go away. But I, I they I, have not said that. Really? I mean, if if they have, that's new. Because when it, I asked the, directly, the compromised vault, the, the compromised vault is compromised. Well, yes, uh, the one that the one that the bad actor has got, it's lost, and I'm systematically going through and changing passwords at all the critical websites that I need to as I go to them over time. You know, I can't, I have enough of them that I can't do it all the time. But at least I want to, you know, close the barn door and not let the next horse out. And, you know, I, I don't see any evidence that LastPass has, has fully plugged, you know, whatever it is that happened, whatever vulnerability was that let the last bad actor in. And they, I mean, if you can assure me, Stuart, if, if you, I mean, I'd love to get a URL of somebody who says, yes, if I delete it, it's gone and they will wipe it, you know, with, with you know triple erase off of my eraser program or something like that then i'm out of there you, you but have I'm to tell you that, that paul would you I believe them <laughs> well that's another story altogether i probably would not at this point but you know you know i i just don't even know what's going to happen to my data when i quit them okay for good jim well i'm just curious dimitri um do you st you still support though the use of a password manager Oh, absolutely. I think that's the best security tool anyone can use, bar none, in terms of ROI. Yeah. Okay. All right. Let's move on to the Twitter files. I, I thought it was what we saw again over the last month or so was this sort of remarkable thing in which uh, Elon Musk invited a bunch of journalists into review all of the old regime's correspondence files about content moderation issues. And these guys have been going through and writing stories based on those files. And I mean, I think the reaction to it on the right has been, oh my God, look at this. It proves all the evil we ever expected. And on the left, which includes, of course, the New York Times and the Washington Post, it's, oh, there's nothing here to look at. These people aren't really journalists uh, and it doesn't show anything. And I think both of those are wrong. And so I thought I'd try to give for those of you who didn't follow them because they're actually a little hard to read because they're all you know part of the condition of access was that they had to tweet their stories so that they're they're not easy to read but first these are real journalists most of them or at least very respectable people who are not just going to be misleading us they all have access to grind of one sort or another but barry weiss they used to work at the, the new york times matt taibbi worked at i forget the rolling stone i think and maybe others other places. Michael Schellenberger is an author and a skeptic about some of the environmental issues on around global warming, but not crazy. David Craig writes for The Atlantic. Lee Fang writes for The Intercept. So those are the folks who did this. I would say half of these stories are duds, and the other half are really pretty troubling. The stuff that's troubling, I thought, was the COVID censorship stories are just astonishing. The amount of pressure that the administration put on Twitter and the aggressive effort to stamp out any kind of question, even from reputable scientists, about the science behind what the CDC was recommending was beyond anything we've ever seen in the annals of American censorship outside so, of war. Stuart, let, let me push back on this. Okay. When you say pressure, they but and by the way, both administrations were doing this, right? The Trump administration, yep. the Biden administration. But they were sending out tweets and, and accounts that they were asking them to shut down. There was no threats that if you don't do this, we'll put you in jail, we'll take you offline or whatever. 
it was requests that the Twitter folks had to, eva- uh, well, didn't have to do anything with actually, but evaluated and decided whether to act on it or not act on it. They didn't accept everything and they didn't have to do anything, right? Um, they didn't, well, in theory, you know, they, they didn't, other than having the president say, you're killing people from the White House if you don't do what I say. And and that's that's a quote. But I Stuart, think he was talking it, about Facebook. I mean, to, to, to pile on a little bit and agree with Dimitri, isn't this what every press secretary has ever done throughout history, which is calling journalists traditional non-social media journalists and saying your reporting is dangerous, it's inaccurate, you're harming oh, sure. the public good. And, and, and we've, we've, we've learned to live with that and the, and the push and pull of that where you're talking about what your reporters are saying. But now what they're saying is you shouldn't allow anybody who uses your service to say these things. And that is an enormously more powerful and more disturbing use of government power. No, no, it isn't, Stuart. These are not exclusive. These are not, I mean, you know, Stuart, you've been, you've been pounding this drum for two years. And I'm sorry, every time I come on that you pound it, I'm going to call you out for being wacky. I'm sorry. It's just not the case, you know, that A, Twitter owes anybody anything. I mean, you look at what's happening today in Brazil when we stop doing content moderation. You know, we, we lose a democracy or we come close to losing a democracy. This is not, you know, it's not an easy thing. Yes, it is totally fair to critique whether or not, you know, Twitter overregulated COVID issues and in following the CDC guidelines, silence some people who may have had a different view of legitimately different view about vaccines but most of what they put down was people who said take the invermectin and shove it up your ass and use a uv light and the whole thing will make you you well which so is I, 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 i'm not i'm i i understand what you're saying i and i i'm not arguing that there is that all the misinformation should just bloom but as soon as we bought that, as soon as we said, yeah, people shouldn't lie about what will cure you, the White House was out there saying, you need to take down these people who are criticizing us, the Great Barrington Declaration, epidemiologists well, from Great Harvard. Barrington Declaration was a bunch of quack jobs who should be taken down. A, a Harvard right? epidi- they were so off the Harvard epidemiologists. I don't care if there's a Harvard epidemiologist on. That doesn't stop him from being a whack job, right? He, yo, I mean, having a credential doesn't make you a sensible uh, evaluator. If you think that the the CDC handled messaging in an accurate way, of course I don't. Okay, of course I don't. So, but 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 that's just a straw man. No, I'm sorry. That's just a straw man. That doesn't that doesn't make the Great Barrington Declaration anything other than a bunch of anti-vaxxers getting together and and sucking their thumbs and arguing that people should die. The reason we have XB1.5 now is because it's growing up in the unvaccinated. Let, let me right? ch- chime in we here, guys. Stuart, let me ask you this. Yeah. Do you think that the government has any role if it sees, for example, a major campaign by the Chinese Communist Party to spread misinformation that's pertaining to our democracy or national security on a social media platform, do you think the government has any responsibility or capability to go to the social media company and say, hey, maybe you should look into this? 
Yes, I, I, I actually think th this is the place where I'm most comfortable with the government taking some action. If you're talking about foreign government disinformation, the government, and including the intelligence community, has a role to play in spotting it and identifying it for people who don't want that on their platforms. So, in uh, fact, so I don't maybe think... We, maybe I, I don't maybe think, we're in agreement then, right? What about Americans who repeat... The disinformation that they I'm consumed sorry. I'm, from... I'm off the bus. <laughs> as soon as you start saying, I'm going to tell Americans what they cannot say, you are in a, in a very different world. So, I, so, so the issue that you have, though, Stuart, is that it can be very difficult for them to tell, right? Because a lot of these accounts are anonymous, so they may have an account that they're watching because they have some information from SIGINT sure. or HUMAN that this is, uh, you know, someone affiliated with Russia, Russian government or Chinese intelligence agency that's spreading a particular source of information. And then you use that as a lead to see, well, who else is spreading that? And then you report all of those accounts to Twitter or whomever. And some of them may be American, some of them may be foreign intel services, but you kind of leave it to the company then to decide what they want to take down or not. Remember, in no, none of these cases did they say, you have to do this. They just say, hey, FYI, here's what we're seeing. You may want to take action. Yeah, I will say Twitter didn't take down everything. They tried to do apply their own standards because, frankly, the U.S. intelligence community, including the FBI, has less insight into what foreign governments are doing by way of social media manipulation than the big social media companies have. And so the government was kind of tossing stuff over the transom saying, I don't know, how about this? How about this? How about this? But it did enormous amounts of it. And you kind of wonder, really? I mean, what value were they adding exactly here? So I think if you actually look at how this sausage was being made, it makes you wonder whether we should have been making the sausage. So that's, you know, that's especially the COVID stuff where I think the abuses were extraordinary and aggressive and they show you how quick Quickly, government gets comfortable with saying, you need to suppress these people because they are saying things that we don't like. There's another story. Can I, can I just yep. say one more thing, Stuart? Uh -huh. I, I, just I just want to actually say thank you because there's no other podcast in America that would let me come on and and, 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 and diss like the that. host in that way. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I, I mean that seriously. I mean that seriously. Not, I mean, sucking up a little bit in the sort of by way of apology. Just to make well. sure you'll get back. <laughs> well, not, not really, but, but I, I do mean that seriously. Uh, I, I, that, is, that is to your credit, so thank you. Okay, so I, I, I will say I think some of these stories are kind of, if you look at the, at the Trump suspension, if you look at the Hunter Biden story, you learn a lot about the internals of how these decisions are made, and that might be, make you not completely comfortable with them. But there's no kind of moment where you you, you catch Yoel Roth going, let's suppress these guys. They, they are trying in good faith to deal with the pressures that they're under and the data that they have. But there is un, an undercurrent of influence here that you can see in in both the Trump and the COVID stuff and the Hunter Biden stuff, where they know what all of their friends want them to do, and they end up doing it. So I, the stuff that I thought didn't work was saying that the FBI had somehow primed them to reject the Hunter Biden laptop. I just, I didn't think that case was made, that the intelligence community had no role here, because as we've discussed, they do have a role in worrying about foreign disinformation. There is a this one story that I don't know if you guys saw this. Chairman Adam Schiff aggressively tried to get 
Twitter to deplatform a Paul Sperry, who's a journalist, because he said Perry was repeating QAnon stuff. I don't see any evidence of that. Instead, what he had done is he had named the whistleblower, Eric Chiaramella, who had reported Trump to the Intelligence Com Committee. And there are some reasons to think that he was particularly unhappy that Chiaramella's name came out because that disclosed some very close contacts that Chiaramella had with the committee that had not been disclosed up to that point. But again, to say this journalist needs to be de platformed and to, to use some pretty dubious stuff just shows how easy it is to step from things that you might say, oh, that sounds, I guess, okay, to things where you say, well, this is just partisan efforts to suppress views that will not redound to the benefit of the politician involved. I I think which the is the big definition lesson of partisanship, this? Stuart. That's the definition yeah. of partisanship. Right, which is but, why you, why we, why we don't want the government to have certain powers. No, but it's why they, it's, they have it's, no power. The, the power was being able to send an email. That that was the power. But but I'll tell you, the the big lesson for me in all of this mess and and what comes through very clearly in in those released emails from Twitter is how hard content moderation decisions are. It's almost an impossible Absolutely. problem. And you think you can create a policy to sort of do it all where you can leave the good stuff and, and let the bad stuff off the platform? You can't, because there's so many great decisions and you have people that are making those decisions. They will be imperfect. They'll make mistakes. And it's just really, really hard. And, so let me ask this question. And Dimitri, to add to Dimitri's point, and once those decisions are being made, it is, to my mind, absolutely inevitable that outside parties will seek to influence that process, including governmental parties seeking to influence it. And I, I don't see anything inherently wrong with government officials saying to a platform over which they have no real power, but over which they have either the friendship connections or the ideological connections. Oh, come on, enormous power to say, I'm, I, you know, I think maybe we ought to do some cybersecurity regulation of yeah, social media. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I, if, if that happened, that would be truly disturbing, but we, can, we have seen absolutely so, so nothing you're, like that. So you're opposed to the you're opposed then to the Republican efforts to regulate because to, as, a, as a way of trying to force them to let more conservatives on, right, Stuart? Because then obviously that would be the wrong way. So to I am not comfortable with the idea of regulating to get more conservatives on. I would like to see mechanisms by which we forced more diversity of views into this uh, this exercise. And I think you could do that. You could say, you know, let people choose which content moderator they want and give them, give them a choice of five. And if they if they choose the people that uh, that like the lefties and not the righties, they, they can they can live in that bubble. Is, is, you're, you're is describing Mastodon. Exactly what's happening now? Yeah. Yeah, Mastodon, Twitter, Post, yeah. and Truth I Social. I am not describing, right now. I'm not describing the, uh, the European Union's nutty digital services Act. Uh, let me ask this question. Just thinking out loud, looking for consensus. Would you guys support the idea that if the government wants to send names and, and suggestions for possible speech suppression to a private entity, it ought to be publicized? Six weeks after it's sent over, every piece of correspondence gets published. Would you admit an exception for law enforcement, intelligence type things? Because if we want to suppress a foreign bot, I might. I mean, if, if it's, it, I, I would say you could, you could certainly leave out the classified information, yeah. but there shouldn't be any classified information going to. I mean, uh, you, you could start with what I mean, they there's... did with the NSL orders, which is just disclosure of how many you got, right? 
So, so yeah, but why, why not just see? Uh, because part of what's really staggering here is the extraordinarily aggressive tone and the and the volume of stuff that is being suppressed. Yeah, I, I think there's a legitimate like, debate here of whether this is the best use of the government's time to be doing this, <laughs> yes. frankly, in most of these cases. And I think we've probably overcorrected in many ways since 2016 a lot of this stuff because a lot of it really doesn't matter. And do I really want my FBI agents wasting their time searching Twitter for posts about uh, you know whatever your topic of choice versus investigating yeah. crimes and, and what have you? You'll you'll see that in the in the Twitter files that there there are people inside Twitter saying kind of one of these guys don't they have any anything better to do yeah okay a couple of stories about competition in cyberspace especially the 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 news that Ukraine's military operational software was attacked by Russian hackers although I I got the sense that they attacked and failed right Dimitri. Well, so this is the Delta Fusion software where all of the intelligence comes in. It's actually a website, so anyone can go and access it if they have that identification. But it's not like it lives on a classified network, which would be the case in NATO or you know U.S.-based systems of that sort. And what the Russians did is they didn't attack the site itself. They actually sent out phishing emails pretending to be the site to the users to try to compromise the users, presumably to, in part, get their credentials and maybe get access to the site. But this is a pretty critical site to the Ukrainians. That's where all the information comes in from the battlefield about what the Russians are using and what they're using for planning their campaigns. It is pretty remarkable that you have the Ukrainians that are moving so fast and deploying new technologies, iterating on it, enabling access to it from you know all sorts of people in their military. The downside is that you have more security risks when it comes to that. I think the, the benefits in terms of rapid access of this intelligence at every level of the organization, of the military, is more beneficial than potentially some leaks of, of that intelligence to the Russians, and certainly the results in the battlefield so far prove, proving that out. And maybe a lesson for NATO in the U.S. that we should be moving a little bit faster in integrating some of those capabilities and potentially worrying a little bit less about security kind of hobbling us down. Not in every situation, of course, but there's trade-offs to be made in, in all these. Yep. Oh, and the, the, the other story that I wanted to ask you about is Chinese researchers claiming in I, what I think is not a peer-reviewed paper that they have figured out how to break RSA with a quantum computer. That story got a lot of attention, and then as it got attention, it started to deflate, was my impression. And it's not at all clear that it means anything about the imminence of a quantum computer attack on RSA. So there are two problems with this story, with, with that paper. One is that you can break RSA with any computer. You can break it by hand if you had billions of years to do it. It's all a question of how fast can you do it, right? And um, the goal with the breaking of all these algorithms is to move away from exponential time to break it, i.e. every single addition, additional bit to the key exponentially increases the range of possibilities that you have to break through. And if you get a key of 2048 or 40. 96 bits, it becomes next to impossible to imagine ever breaking these, these algorithms. The goal is to move them into polynomial time, which means that it will not increase exponentially, and, and you can actually break it in a feasible amount of time. That has not been proven to, to be doable on conventional computers. We know that with the short algorithm on quantum computers, you can do it, but you need a very large quantum computer, which so far has not been built. What these guys are claiming is that with an existing computer of about 400 qubits, a 400 
422 qubits that IBM has released that they could break it, but they didn't again say how fast. So many people think that it's still going to be exponential time, so it doesn't actually give you anything of benefit. And the other problem that most people don't realize is that we don't really have a 422 qubit computer. Yes, IBM has managed to produce it, but the error rate on these qubits is so high that you actually have about a 1% chance of getting a good result using an algorithm on that computer, which slows things down dramatically. So we're still very far away from having an operational quantum computer that has enough qubits that you can do much much of anything useful with. Yeah, I, I got the impression that Schnorr works best is more of a trick than just a technique, and it works very well for small key spaces and less well for large. And so they, when they, when they did this, and they said, "Look, we can do it for small key spaces," so obviously we could do it for more. It's not clearly true. No, no, that, that's not the Shore algorithm. Well, we, we won't go into into all the details of crypto okay. and quantum computers at this at this stage. All right, Jim, did you have something you wanted to jump in on? Not on that, unless you want to cover the TikTok. Oh yeah, sure. Well, let, let, go ahead. What's 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 the news over the holiday for TikTok? Well, the context first is, of course, that there is still a CFIUS order outstanding, as far as I understand, at least issued at the tail end of the August of the last year of the Trump administration, that was intended to require ByteDance, the owner of TikTok, to divest itself of its U.S.-based operations. That order has never been enforced. There are ongoing discussions, reporting about ongoing controversy or debate within the administration about whether to enforce it or not, but to go forward with some kind of deal that would allow TikTok to continue operating in the United States under some kind of separation of functions so that the data on U.S. persons remains, U.S. citizens remains in the U.S. and outside of the control of the Chinese government. In the course of all of that, there was some journalism reporting on internal proceedings within TikTok, casting a little bit of doubt on TikTok's claims that they were going to be able to or that they were genuinely interested in separating these functions. That led TikTok to create an internal investigation. Talk to Dimitri's point about it's it, it, it's not the cover-up, it's, it's the investigation that kills you every time. Some TikTok employees took it upon themselves, or at least they looked at the journalists' accounts who had been reporting the story, got the IP addresses of the journalists in an effort to cross-match them, I guess, against the IP addresses of TikTok employees, or what TikTok employees, who, who TikTok employees were, were communicating with, in order to identify the source of the leak. So, so this is not a story, the, the, the latest iteration is, is not a story about government control of TikTok. It's about TikTok's corporate power to use for self-protective purposes the data that it has, in this case, in an effort to track down leakers. Now, but, they ultimately fired those, those And guys in fact, did. to its credit, of course, it's under the microscope, but to, to its credit, TikTok fired the four employees who had done the internal investigation to identify the IP addresses of the journalists who were writing these embarrassing stories about internal discussions at TikTok. Yeah. Behind all of this, of course, is this, as I said, this pending CFIUS proceeding. On top of that, now an official U.S. government legal ban on TikTok on any U.S. government-owned devices that are used by employees. Multiple states, the number is up to 19 or 20, multiple states prohibiting the use of TikTok on state-owned devices, which sort of astonishes me in a way because 
I would assume that a government-owned device is subject to a approved list of what you can load on it in the first place. Yeah, maybe. Uh, right? it, it, yeah. So anyhow, the states are now moving to ban it. Years ago, DOD banned it on DOD-owned devices. Now the the ban is, is executive branch-wide. The House Administration's office has now banned it on U.S. House of Representatives-owned devices that are used by employees. One fascinating thing is one of these state bans, just a last point, the states are in a way a little bit out front on this. The Texas ban directs as well the state agencies to develop a plan to address the use of personal devices Mm-hmm. by employees or contractors where the personal device can access your .gov email and it has TikTok on it. And in fact, the DOD had a policy in August that addressed that issue. It didn't really call out TikTok per se, because I mean, to me, the harder part of the question is, what about the personal devices that government employees have, which right. they use to access their government, their government application, which is pretty much the way this works these days. Yeah. right? You, you've got personal. You, you might have you might have a, a dividing line in theory, or maybe in practice, on your phone between your work and your personal stuff. But it's one device, and right. they they load a whole impression onto it. And so the you know the government owned devices may be a little bit of what Bruce Schneier calls security theater. The personal devices and the question Dimitri would have better insight: Can you actually build that separation so half of the device is government applications and access, and half of the device is personal? That's certainly where the DoD policy is going. You can build it and advertise it. I'm not sure you can enforce it completely. Yeah. I just want to go back for a second to the quantum question, because even though this Chinese paper is most likely much ado about nothing, we know the quantum is coming at some point in the future. So everyone should be moving to post-quantum encryption. Um, And NIST released some great algorithms last summer. So people should be looking to implement them regardless. Sure. Why not? Because it's not that hard. I mean, it's hard to move. But if if you're going to move, why not move to something that's quantum resistant? And and there are things that are... Then the big problem becomes all the legacy stuff that the bad guys already have a copy of, which was encrypted with the older, you know, non-quantum resistant. Yeah. If they want to, if they want to, if the bad guys want to disclose what I said 20 years ago, you know, I'm going to claim I've completely forgotten it. There's some more sensitive stuff than that. (laughs) Oh, that's fair enough. Okay. And Snowden Uh, released a lot of it already. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Okay. Let's just go do some quick hits on stories that I, I just can't resist pointing out. Another black man has been sent, was sent to jail for about a week because of a facial recognition error near New Orleans. What I think is remarkable is that that's, you know, people have been desperately looking for these cases and they find one every year these days. This is, this is not the most serious problem we face. Obviously, it's a problem if you are arrested, but no good police agency should be arresting people just because you, your name came up in a facial recognition search. On the other hand, it turns out the facial recognition is being used to oppress the single most loathed minority in American life. 
lawyers. Madison Square Garden, to my astonishment, uses facial recognition to find lawyers who work for law firms that have sued any Madison Square Garden entity and says, you can't go to the Rockettes show, you can't go to Madison Square Garden. And they actually found a woman who was taking a Girl Scout troop in and they kicked her out because she worked for the wrong law firm. Now, I can't believe they're going to make this stick. They have an obligation to serve the public I, and to say, yeah, but there's an asterisk for people that we really don't like because they sued us is not going to work. And they've <laughs> picked a fight with lawyers, for God's sake. <laughs> I, so I, you know, I, I, I will say that this, is, this was a bad use of facial recognition in every respect. All right. Everybody should be ready. You know, it's worth pointing out. We're going to see something from Facebook about whether to put Trump back on, on, on Facebook, and it's going to happen soon. So watch for that. The EU is, has announced that it is moving forward a draft that says, here's our deal in which we agree, agree that the U.S. is adequate for purposes of sending data to the United States. So we'll end briefly, at least, the, the fight with the U.S. over data exports. It'll then go to court, and the, the EU Court of Justice will probably strike it down, but we'll, that'll give us three more years to figure this out. It's the usual shell game that the EU plays. They say, we don't actually have an agreement. The U.S. is doing this, and then we're going to declare them adequate. That's because the U.S. has not insisted on getting a, a promise that it would be held adequate, which would be binding even on that crazy court in, in Brussels. Actually, there might be in Luxembourg or some damn place, but, but the EU won't do that. I, and the U.S. is not insisting on it. We're going to have to do that before we get out of this mess. That's my guess. And you may remember that I said that ChatGBT was a, did a great Turing test imitation of a sociopath with too many lawyers. And it turned, and then I, I speculated that Google got trumped by ChatGBT and OpenAI because Google was worrying about all of the ways in which ChatGBT or its version of that could be purposed to do things that would be embarrassing to Google. And certainly that happened with ChatGBT. But the uh, Google has confirmed that in a meeting with their employees when the employees said, how could this happen? How could we lose this race? Google said, well, you know, there's a big reputational risk that startups don't have that we have, which means basically they are holding up progress on their AI engines so that they can be reviewed by even more lawyers than OpenAI threw at their tool. Kind of a sad commentary on the state of innovation in Silicon Valley. And that is it. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Dimitri. Love Thanks, it. Paul. Thank this you. was great to have you. For our listeners, keep an eye out. We're going to do another bonus episode probably in a week or so. An interview with Andy Greenberg of Wired about his really very good book about how traceable cryptocurrency transactions really are and the story of those transactions. It's called Tracers in the Dark. We'll have them on shortly. Please keep sending us comments. Leave us a review. I promise to read them if they're comprehensible and, and fun. I have two. Here's one. This is the best of them. It says, more like the Spook Law podcast. Interesting discussion once in a while if you can stand the unapologetic spooky spin and vibes of those U.S. intelligence NATSEC scene affiliated 100-year-old dudes, the worldviews and the politics they represent. So so on behalf of the 100-year-old dudes who are doing this, I do want to thank HNRTNS from Finland for the comment. Here's another one I don't understand completely. It said, more cyber theory. The U.S. cyber community is clearly still in need of theoretical consensus 
some theory level content exists, but we need to continue the discussions to improve, refine, understand, and cons get, achieve consensus. I guess I'm saying I disagree. We do need 60 plus more hours with Uncle Stu and Dave Itell grilling our top theorists and strategists. So I, I can't tell whether that's mocking us or praising us, but uh, TXTJ, uh, I promised I would read it if it wasn't full of scurrilous material, and that wasn't, so there you go. And that's the end. This has been episode 436 of the Cyber Law Podcast. Wacky!